So today we come to the end of a passage, a long passage from verse 1 all the way to verse 12, that we've been looking at the past couple weeks. We're coming to the end of a passage where Peter has just been unloading sentence after sentence, paragraph after paragraph of just reasons to praise God in terms of what he's done to save us. And we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, which if you have a, uh, a pew Bible, for lack of better words, if you picked one up in the back, that's on page 1116, 1116. 1 Peter chapter 1. And Alicia read this as our call to worship at the beginning of the service, so you might remember some of these reasons that he gives to praise God. Verse 1, if you look at your Bible, verse 1 He says to praise God who has chosen to save us. He's chosen us and not because of anything that he found attractive or deserving in us. That if we're believers, we know that before we were ever born, before we could ever make a decision about accepting or rejecting him, before it would ever have even come across our mind that we needed saving Before ever it came to our will to choose to trust Christ, God said, I'm going to save you. I'm going to pour my grace on you and make you one of my people, a believer. And then when we come to realize this, when we really come to apprehend this, this, that, that, that salvation is entirely of God's initiative, that there are many people who don't experience salvation, but for some odd reason, that in God's grace, He chose to give it to you, You can't help but praise God. You can't help but to stand and wonder that God chose to save you despite the fact that you did not deserve it. But there's more. We can look at verse 2 where he not only chooses to make us his own, but in making us his own, look at he purposes to give us his spirit. His his very own presence. The the spirit, it's it's not going to leave us where we are. It's called the Holy Spirit. He even says the sanctification of the Spirit. He's going to take us from our entrapment to sin and destructive behaviors, misguided obsessions, selfish, destructive relationships that we build, and He's going to transform us. The Spirit gives us spiritual life. And then He begins to mold us and restore us and make us whole again. Verse 2, he, he, God chooses us for obedience to Jesus. That when He chooses to save us, part of what He's determined to do is to make us into a people that submits to Christ. He takes us, a people who in our sinful nature were hell-bent on rebelling against God, and then He transforms us into a people who now submit to God. We submit to Christ We obey Christ first by trusting in Him, by embracing Him as our Savior, and then by following Him with our lives. And we can go on that God chose us, notice, to be sprinkled with Jesus' blood, that those who are are believers are cleansed by Jesus' death, cleansed from sin, that there's no longer than the separation between us and God. Verse 3, that according to God's great mercy... That is, we don't deserve it, but nonetheless, he's caused us to be born again. Spiritually speaking, we were dead in our sin. 
Okay, in terms of who we were meant to be as worshipers of God, that is. In terms of as a people created to obey, serve, and enjoy God, we had no pulse. We were dead. There was nothing there. But He gave us spiritual life. He caused us to be born back into who we were, what we were meant to be once again. And now we have this spiritual life. We're a people who now again worships and serves and enjoys God. But not only is God doing all of these things now for believers, but, but He also promises our future and full restoration, what He calls our, our, our inheritance in verse 4. There's this full, complete fulfillment of His rescuing, saving plan. And this inheritance is secure. It's kept by God, but also we see in verse 5 that not only is the inheritance secure, but if we're genuine believers, God's going to keep us secure. Our salvation can't be lost because He's going to guard us in our position of faith, of trusting in Christ. And as Drew talked about last week, with verses 6-9, through this is even true in the midst of trials. In fact, through trials, God refines us. And He does that mysterious work of restoring us even through trials. Like, a, like gold in a furnace, Peter says. And, and all of this, Peter says, is reason to praise God. All of this is just one long, what we might call like a praise fest, of just, of just wondering and marveling in the grace that God has given us in salvation. It's what we call a doxology. And this is how Peter opens his letter, with a doxology. And then we come to verses 10 through 12, if you can hit the next slide. 10 through 12, when we come to this verse, this is the salvation that Peter has in view. All that we've talked about up until this point. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation... The salvation that we just unpacked. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So as Peter wraps up his doxology here in verses 10 through 12, as he wraps up his, his praise fest, okay, he wants to add one more thing to the list. He wants us to hit us with one more dose of reason to be praising God, to be rejoicing in God. And the main thrust of this text is quite simple. And so this sermon is quite simple. There's really just a simple point here. Peter wants us to develop a greater appreciation, a more intense gratitude for this salvation that God has given us in Christ. He wants us to walk away as a people in absolute awe of the salvation that God has given us. And he does so by showing us a glimpse into the tremendous privilege we have as the recipients, 
as believers, as those who have received this salvation. To do so, he points us to the prophets and to the angels. This salvation that you have, you want to know how incredible it is? You want to know how amazing it is? What a privilege it is to be someone who gets to partake in this? He says, look at how the prophets anticipated it. And then look at how the angels marvel at it. So let's begin with the prophets. In verse 10, Peter describes the prophets as those who prophesied about this salvation that would eventually be accomplished through Christ about this saving grace, as Peter says, that is now the believers. And if you're not familiar, I want to talk a little bit about the prophets. The prophets that he's talking about here are people from the early parts of the Bible. What we call the Old Testament. We might call it the first half of the Bible, for lack of better words. This is the part before Jesus comes in the flesh. And the prophets were people that God used to deliver his message. In fact, God actually says that he speaks through the prophets, that his word comes to them and they deliver it. And even even here we see this, where, where Peter says in verse 12, notice in verse 12, he says that it was revealed to the prophets. This isn't like a message that they came up with on their own. This isn't their own ideas. It was a message that was revealed to them. It was given to them by God himself. And and so their words are God's very words. Or we could look at verse 11. You see in verse 11, Peter says that it was God's spirit, what, what Peter calls the spirit of Christ, that was the one indicating what the prophets spoke. It was the spirit's message spoken through the prophets. And as a side note, this is how we understand Scripture as a whole. That God used human beings to write Scripture, but He did so in such a way that the words, the human words of Scripture, the words written by human authors, are at the same time His very words. So we could even think of the second letter that Peter writes. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21. to 21. Hear what he says. He says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's interpretation. Like it's just their ideas that they wrote down. That this is just a reflection of how human beings have, have thought about religion. He says, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the prophets are these Old Testament figures who spoke God's word. They were God's mouthpiece, we might say. They delivered God's message. And one of the things that the prophets did, among many, was that they foretold of God's promises, of the the future salvation that God was planning for his people. And Peter describes this salvation specifically in terms of, look at verse 11, he describes it in terms of the sufferings of Christ. And Christ is just another word for Messiah. So this is the suffering of the Messiah. This is the salvation. Somehow it's bound up with the sufferings of the Messiah. Read verses 10 and 11 with me. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted what? The sufferings of Christ. Christ. 
and the subsequent glories. That somehow this salvation, the prophets understood, the prophets predicted, it would happen through the suffering of this coming figure, this Christ, this Messiah, this Savior, this servant of God. And there are many texts, when he says prophets, there are many texts that we could look to where we could see the various things that the prophets predicted and all the different dimensions of the salvation that God was planning. But one text stands above the rest as a text that is probably in the back of Peter's mind as he writes this letter. It's a text that he later alludes to in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. And that chapter, that, that passage from the prophets is the 53rd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, if you would go to the next slide. The prophet Isaiah lays out how this salvation would be achieved through the Messiah's suffering. He spells it out for us. He's anticipating it. God sends the Messiah, get this, God sends the Messiah to identify with God's people. And as we know, Jesus, this Messiah, did this by becoming a human being. God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, Jesus puts himself in the place of humanity. Humanity because of our sin, because of our rebellion, that is, our wickedness, rebelling against God, is by nature separated from God. God, who is a perfect and good judge, cannot tolerate evil. But in his goodness, he judges it. And so in steps the Messiah, Jesus, who through, then through his suffering, he takes that sin upon himself and takes God's judgment He takes it on our behalf. We then, when when, when we trust in Christ for what he's done, we have that stain of sin, that guilt removed from us, and we stand before God as forgiven. Hear what what Isaiah said, what what he saw coming. And this, some 700 years before Christ actually came to earth. Starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13, it says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Talking about the Messiah here. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of man. So shall he sprinkle many nations, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, uh, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty, majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have all turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, this Messiah, the righteous Messiah, shall make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he, pour, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Or if we go to the next slide, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 3.18, how Peter sums this up. As Peter says in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That Christ, he's the righteous one, the sinless one, and he's dying for the sins in the place of the unrighteous. The wicked ones. That's us. Why? That he might bring us to God. That through taking our sin upon himself and removing it from us, we are brought back to God. We are no longer the object of God's judgment. We are rescued. Saved. And this is the salvation. This is the grace that Peter says, you've received. As Peter says back in verse 12, if we look back to verse 12, he says that the prophets understood that when they wrote these things, way back then even, that they were serving you. That this salvation would be something given to you, in other words. And and of course, he's talking to believers here. That those who have placed their faith in Christ, it's a salvation accomplished by Christ, And if it's accomplished by Christ, then it has to be a salvation that's received by leaning on Christ, by trusting in Christ and not on ourselves. We can't do it. We can't somehow remove our sin from us. We need Christ, and so we're saved by placing our trust in Him and nothing 
else. And this salvation is no accident. This plan of God to save us through Jesus' suffering is something that he planned and purposed to do before he created the world. So if you looked at chapter 1, verse 20, 1 Peter 1.20, it says that Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That, that his death was in the mind of God, we might say, before God even founded the world. Or we could look at Revelation 13.8, where it speaks of those whose name is written in the slain lamb's book of life, what before the foundation of the world. And the sufferings of, of this Christ then, this salvation that we receive through it, is not some accident. It's, it's, it's the very purpose and plan of God. It's not that Christ's death was some sort of fluke. That somehow they caught him by surprise where they apprehended and killed him and, 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 and somehow it was a mission failure. No, Peter says that, this was, that it was actually the Spirit of Christ himself who was predicting and planning these things. This was the mission all along, centered and fulfilled in the cross. And this is the salvation that the prophets longed for. And I don't want us to miss this, because this is where we come to Peter's central point here. Why are we talking about this? Why is Peter going after this? As we stick our minds into the nature of this salvation that we re- received and we meditate on it and we think about it. Peter wants us to come away out of this experience with an intensified appreciation and gratitude for the salvation that we have. He wants us to walk away with awe and wonder. He wants us to feel, to really get the privilege it is that we believers have this side of the cross, of ha- this side of seeing these things fulfilled for us. You want to know the privilege that it is to be in our position? You want to know the wonder of our salvation? What does he say? He says, look how the prophets treated it. Look how they yearned for it, how they longed for it. And and I want us to really get this. I don't want us to miss this. that, That what we're doing here, I don't want it to be just some sort of study of the Bible where we intellectually come to understand what it's saying and we could explain it, but it hasn't impacted us. It's like we don't actually get it. That what it's saying here is true. That this is, this is what Peter is saying is true of us. This is our privilege. This isn't like bird watching where you somehow observe something from a distance through a set of binoculars and you're removed from it and you just say, well, isn't that interesting out there? Peter says that this is reality. This is the way it is. This isn't some fiction. If you're a believer, this is your experience. This is not just something you reserve, you observe. This is your reality. This is your salvation. And you want to know what sort of privilege it is? Look at the prophets. You want to know how mind-blowingly amazing this is? Just look at the awe and wonder of the prophets. Like the salvation that, that God has planned from all eternity has been fulfilled and has been fulfilled for us. 
The prophets, they searched, they inquired, they longed for. They, it's like they were saying, God, what is this amazing thing that you're planning? I want to know more. Who is this Messiah figure, this suffering? What is this all about? You have salvation planned for your people. He's going to bear our iniquities. What is this? I want to know more. And so they tear apart the scriptures just trying to find anything else. They're like, it's like they're ringing it, trying to get anything out of the text. That's the sort of anticipation they have. They just want to know anything more. And now they're not serving themselves, but they're serving us. This is the salvation we've received. The thing that they ached and longed for. It's now been fulfilled. And we're the recipients. And then we can look at the angels and we see a similar reaction. Look at the end of verse 12. That this salvation, this the salvation that we've received is described like this. It's, this is things into which angels long to look. These things are not only the subject of the prophets and uh, attention, but, but it, the, in their intense examination, but it's also the spectacle of the angels. I like how the NET, uh, one translation, puts this. It says, things angels long to catch a glimpse of. It's, they just want to stare at it. You consider all the creatures in the world, all the, all the magnificent creatures, and I think of the description of angels in the Bible, where it just seems so mysterious and just rather majestic. These angels are, are incredible creatures, these servants of God that they worship in the presence of God. And they just sit there in, in a stupor at what God has done to save us. You just want to ask, do you feel the wonder of what Peter is tapping into here? And as we bring this home, let's take a step back to verse 12, at the beginning of verse 12, where Peter says that it was revealed to the prophets that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have been announced, now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, that is the gospel. To you by the, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Notice this, okay? You. They were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you. Through those who preach the gospel to you. We read Hebrews 11 earlier in the service. I want, I want us to notice again verses 39 and 40. And this time from the NIV, which helps make it clear. The author of Hebrews says this. He says, These were all commended for their faith. These, these, these saints of old, they're longing for the fulfillment of God's promises of salvation. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us. So that only together with us would they be made perfect? Would they actually come to see these things realized when it was realized for us? Why in the world have we been given the privilege of being in this place in God's story? That only with us would these things be fulfilled. That we, and I mean, who knows why? Because certainly we don't deserve it. That God is giving these things to us. That, it, that, that we get to stand at the place of the fulfillment of these things. That we're at the center, we're the recipients of a salvation that the angels stand dumbfounded over. The prophets anticipated it from afar. The angels marvel at what God has done. 
and we actually experience it. When we see this, when, when, when we see of this salvation, of, 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 it was of such great anticipation, of great interest to the prophets, and it was of such great interest to the angels, the point that Peter has for us here is that it's meant to intensify our interest in it as well. And this has huge implications for how we view ourselves and how we understand ourselves in this world. Oftentimes, especially as certain segments of our culture become less and less culturally Christian, and maybe they feel more hostile or closed off to traditional Christian uh, ways of thinking, the Christian message, Christian lifestyle, I think we can start to feel weird and we start to feel more marginalized. And as we've said, that's like that right, exactly, that's true. That's how it should be. We should expect nothing less, that we should be weird. There should be a sense of ostracization. As Peter said in the opening, he said we're elect exiles, that we're strangers. That if there's little difference between ourselves and our non-Christian acquaintances, that should be reason for concern. We should feel at odds, like not on just not just surface level things, but like fundamental differences, disjointed from our culture, that our values, our convictions, what we love, what we care about, what we believe, how we understand the meaning and purpose of our lives, how we orient our lives, it's going to be drastically different. But oftentimes this difference, it, makes us, it can make us feel insecure. We're insecure about ourselves. It's, we could use a common phrase that we often, um, we often start to feel like we are on the, quote, wrong side of history. We feel so bizarre, like, this is just, is this really real? Like, we begin to slowly buy into the way our society paints reality, and we begin to drift, we begin to doubt our identity as a Christian, we, it becomes less pronounced. We don't want to bring it up as much. We'd rather kind of just blend in, not be different. We're unsure and we feel ambivalent. And especially for Peter's, for Peter's readers here who are facing actual physical persecution, okay, this danger was obviously pressing for them. So what does Peter do? Peter reminds us of who we are. Again, he brings us back to our true identity. When the world would have us feel marginalized and out of place, he says, you as a believer are at the center of what God is doing in this world. You're not, marginal. You're not, you're not marginalized in God's story. You're at the center in Christ. You're not on the wrong side of history. You in, history, you in Christ Okay, you're at the center of God's history as he defines it. And he wants us to just let that sink in for a moment. This gospel that you believe, Peter says, he says, be assured, this isn't some heresy, this isn't some off-track, ill-founded idea. No, he says that this gospel was, that was preached to us, that we have believed, that has been passed down for ages, 2,000 years since Christ, Okay, Peter connects this gospel straight back to the Old Testament prophets. This is, this, this is what they predicted and promised, now fulfilled. 
Verse 12, in the things now announced to you through the gospel, through the good news. And notice, the same Spirit of God that was at work in predicting these things, predicting the gospel through the prophets, is now at work in its proclamation. Verse 12, preached to you by the Holy Spirit. This isn't some human invention. This gospel is the message of God Himself. And I want to close by pointing out one final implication that this has for us in terms of our evangelism, in terms of how we think of ourselves as a church on mission. Our spreading of the gospel. I think a lot of times we can think things like, man, wouldn't it have been great to live when, like during the time of Moses or the time of Elijah, you know, all these grand days in the Bible where God was doing all these miraculous things like splitting the water open or showing the prophets of Baal a thing or two. God was doing all this miraculous, amazing stuff. And I actually had a friend once come to me who was like having an existential crisis of sorts because he was wrestling through like in the Old Testament, the early days, it, it seemed like God was doing a ton of miraculous, significant things. And at the end of history, Christ is going to return and God's going to do a lot of incredible things there. But like right now, it just seems so mundane and so unimportant and so insignificant. And sometimes we treat our Christianity like that. It's just like, it's just like a default thing. I guess I'm a Christian, it doesn't really, but it doesn't really seem to mean much. It just seems so uneventful, just so mundane. And I think we can a lot of times feel like this. Man, it would be nice to live back then, but Peter comes in and he's like, are you kidding me? Like, knock that off. You live in the time of the fulfillment of the things the Old Testament anticipated. Those were but shadows. Christ is the substance. And you think your life is mundane and insignificant in the story of God from creation to consummation, from the story of when God began the world to the time when he's going to restore it. You think that this is just an insignificant time period. Let your sense of identity get infused yourself a, a little bit of this that you live in the point in history where God is spreading his gospel to the nations. And he's doing it through the power of the Spirit. He's poured out his Spirit for that very purpose. As this passage says, that the gospel was preached by the power of the Spirit. Do you remember where, what, what, with the beginning of the book of Acts, what the apostles were doing? Before Pentecost, they were waiting for the Spirit to be poured out. And when Christ poured out his spirit at Pentecost, the gospel then was unleashed and it went to the nations. And this is our time period. We live in that era. This is our mission. This is our promise that God's spirit will be with us and will empower us as we tell people about Christ. And when we boil over with the tremendous appreciation that we ought to have after reflecting on these things, after preaching these things to ourselves on a daily basis, after coming together on every Sunday and celebrating these things, when we boil over with this appreciation due to this amazing salvation that we've received, we can't help but go and tell others. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says the love of Christ controls us. And he's talking about spreading the gospel. We love Christ so much we can't not tell others about him. 
And so in closing, our response is to join Peter in his doxology. Praise God for the salvation that he's given us. And may our lives and our commitment to the gospel reflect that praise.